finally landed on the final chapter of Luke. So we're going to be in Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. <laughs> but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Father, I pray that as we close off the book of Luke, as Alex preaches today, I pray that as Peter marveled, that we will still marvel until we have that day where we are united in your presence again. Father, I thank you for your word and the truth and the hope that it gives us that we will be with you forever. Amen. Thanks, Thanks DJ. So yeah, here we are in the home stretch of Luke. We have one more week, guys, in Luke. And I promise you, no one is more excited about that than I am. Because preaching through the Gospels is an impossible task in so many ways. Um, if Jesus is still in the grave, and the end of the story was the moment when he died for our sins, and that's the end, then there isn't really any type of real effect in your life right now. But if Jesus rose from the grave, which he did, which honestly, this account, just be a side note, this account proves that this is true. Uh, the way Luke writes his narrative is not advantageous for him if he's trying to convince you of something. It was discovered, the tomb was discovered by women, which would not have been acceptable in, acceptable in that day. The body of Jesus was gone. There's a lot of details working against Luke here if it's not true. But it is true. And if Jesus rose from the grave, which he did, and this is what I would propose today, is your imagination is not wild enough to see how deep and per pervasive the power of the resurrected Jesus penetrates into your life. Our imagination cannot fully, to an extent, without help from God himself, See and imagine the depth and the pervasiveness of how the resurrected Jesus should penetrate into our every single fabric of our life. Every single fabric. This is why Luke says that the disciples, the disciples are perplexed. I want you to see that. The scripture says here that they were, they were perplexed when they found this. Why? Because they did not have a category for this type of power. They did not understand this. Yes, Peter confessed. That Jesus was the Son of God. He did. The, the disciples did not struggle to believe in the divinity of Christ. That, that wasn't an issue. 
But they had no concept for what that actually means. And this, this is what that means. That he holds the world and even the power of death itself in his hands. Holds it in his hands. And that beyond that, he, because he is God and because he rose from the grave, will live forever as well as everyone else who believed in him. Because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The resurrection is perplexing. Maybe it's even perplexing here for, for you. It could be perplexing on a subconscious level in your understanding. The tension in your life that exists between uh, th- these glorious truths that we read about in the Bible and the frustrations that you experience on an everyday level could be exactly what the disciples are saying felt perplexing. And the resurrection is perplexing in this way because it is hard for us to even imagine the alternative life that the resurrection calls us into as Christians. It's hard to even imagine it. If Jesus rose from the grave, then things are not the same. And the disciples are here. It's so beyond their understanding. It's so countercultural to the world. It's so other than anything that they could ever have imagined that they don't know what to do with it. They're perplexed. The resurrection of Jesus brings a whole new perspective to our lives and on our lives. Let me ask you, do you see your life in light of the resurrection? Do you see your life in light of the resurrection? Consider that question. Do you you live your life as if Christ rose from the grave? If we're honest with ourselves, I think it's fair to say the resurrection of Jesus is not the guiding uh, truth for all of our decisions on a daily basis, right? For example, we don't wake up in the morning and ask, what should I have for breakfast since Jesus rose from the grave? You know, we don't ask that question. We don't ask, what am I going to wear today since Jesus rose from the grave? And, you know, that sounds silly and trivial. But let's apply it to larger questions. What am I going to do with my life? How does the resurrection of Jesus impact that decision and that question? Am I going to get married? How does the resurrection impact that question? Am I going to have kids? Should we have kids? What... Where will I live? What do I want my life to ultimately be about since Jesus rose from the grave? From my own experience, I can say that considering the resurrection as a way to reorient my entire life is not always on the forefront of my mind. The fact that Jesus rose from the grave and now that impacts this very moment right now is not always on the forefront of my mind. When I think about my daily decisions or I think about some of those big meta-narrative questions, you could say, like, what am, I, what am I pursuing? Who am I? What do I want our family to be? What do I want to be as a man? I'm not always thinking about the resurrection of Christ. And if you're honest this morning, I think many of us, maybe all of us, may have a general framework for Christianity that says you will go to God for forgiveness 
and you'll go to God for the question about where you're going to spend eternity. But in the day-to-day, there are other factors, there are other desires that inform, uh, that are informed by the world that rule your heart, that rule your desires. And they determine how you live and they determine what you do. The earth-old question, I think, that, that this is really getting at, when we consider... Does the resurrection impact us impact us on, on a true, real way? Is this, what is the good life? In other words, the, the question we're trying to answer is like, what is the relationship between the resurrection of Christ and the life that we're all striving after, the good life? The life that, that offers us fulfillment and happiness. At the end of the day, we're all seeking out some type of fulfillment in our life. We're all seeking that out. Almost all of our decisions are coming from a place of wanting to be fulfilled, wanting something to be met in our hearts. We want to know that we lived a good life. We want to know that. And each one of us has a particular category to think through what that is for you, right? We all all think and have uh, assumptions that we bring to our our day-to-day lives that inform that. What is that good life that we're all seeking after? So that's my, that's my question today. What is the life that you dream up that has your heart and drives all your decisions? What is that? Have you ever asked that question before? You know, I think a lot of times we don't even ask the question. What do we really want? I think about this famous scene in The Notebook. That's the most theological movie right ever. And uh, Rachel, McNab- Rachel McAdams says, what do you want? And here's, you know, Ryan Gotham saying, I don't know what I want. What do you want out of life? What is the good life to you? I think it's important for us to be honest with this question so that we can see how Christ, how in Christ, we find those answers. We find those answers. I want you to consider this passage, and this is where Luke's a narrative. Luke has his own desires for his narrative and what he's trying to show us. But then when you fast forward in the New Testament to the, to the epistles, you see a lot more content about what does this narrative mean. So when we fast forward to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 is an entire narrative that tells us about what does the resurrection mean for us now. And I think that in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 18, it tells us something very significant. This is what it says, 1 Corinthians 17 and 18. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So by by way of just like using this as somewhat of a framework, this morning, I want us to look at two things. I want to look at, at what the implications are of the resurrection for our life. Three points there. And then I want to end by showing how the resurrection impacts the good life that we're all striving for. So Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. He says, if Christ has not been raised, the first thing he says is your faith is futile. Have you ever had that thought? Why, why am I a Christian? I've had that thought multiple times in my life. Why am I a Christian? You know, is this a cultural uh, 
association I have? Was I just raised in the South and therefore I just adopted a particular faith? You know, I think that that's a very um, pertinent question in our cultural moment right now where deconstruction is rampant. And people are asking questions because of their experience in the church or because of some suspicions they have and skepticisms they have from maybe other cultural factors. Why am I a Christian? What undergirds that? Is this really what I should be devoting my life to? It's okay if you have those doubts before. It's okay. Because I can tell you right now, the Bible and the message of the gospel can take every dart that's thrown at it. Paul's saying right here, he's saying, listen, if Christ has not been raised, then you should be asking those questions. If Christ has not been raised, you should be having these doubts and it shouldn't really affect your life whatsoever because your faith is futile. There's no point to it. It's a waste of your time and your energy like we talked about last week. If Jesus is not alive, if he's not doing something in our midst, then corporate worship is really about you. Corporate worship is really about how it makes you feel. The Bible is really about how it can lead you to a better life up until the moment that you pass away. But if Christ has been raised, on the flip, flip it around. If Christ has been raised, then this is what's true. Your faith is not futile. Your faith in Him is not in vain. It is the only thing, if Jesus rose from the grave, that actually truly matters. It's the only thing that matters. Faith, if Jesus rose from the grave, is not a hoping in the best. Like, like the world would tell you, faith is not this general abstract principle that you just pull out and it leads to a general optimism in your life. Faith is not a hoping for the best. It is secure in the resurrection of Christ regardless of how you feel. It's secure in the resurrection of Christ regardless of your doubts. If Christ rose from the grave, then the most pressing reality on our lives is His resurrection. It's the most pressing thing about us. When someone comes up to you and tells, asks you the question, what are you about? The Christian says, I'm about Jesus crucified and resurrected. This is ultimate. If Christ rose from the grave, then at every moment forward, if our faith is not in vain, if it's truly not in vain, if, it's not, if there's not futility in faith, because of the resurrection of Christ, that every moment forward, we should be asking this question. Does this decision or that decision in my life flow from His resurrection? You ever thought of your life that way? Here's, here's the reality. If Jesus only died on the cross, then an effort to memorialize or pay tribute to Him is commendable. It's great. But if Jesus really rose from the grave then anything that is not in faith submitted to him is dishonorable. It flips it. If Jesus died on the cross and that was it, then any of your efforts to come and memorialize that moment are wonderful and great. Good job. If Jesus rose from the grave, then anything in your life that's not submitted to him does not pay him enough respect, does not pay him enough due. It doesn't raise the ante enough because Jesus crucified and Jesus risen from the grave is the most glorious reality in the universe. In which everything in life now hinges around. Everything in life is ultimately about now. 
The disciples are perplexed here. These women are perplexed. Paul, Peter doesn't believe it because if Jesus rose from the grave, it changes everything. Everything about life. What you do when you wake up. What you devote your life to. What you, how you love. How you live. Where you go. What you do. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. But if Christ has been raised, your faith is not in vain. Paul also says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's the phrase that uses here. Have you ever had this thought? I'm never going to find freedom from this. I'm never going to be free from this particular sin struggle. I'm never going to be able to overcome that. The reality of Christ's resurrection is this. If Christ has been raised, sin has no power over you anymore. Should you think about that? If Christ has been raised, sin has no power over you anymore. Romans 6, verse 5 through 11 it says this. I would encourage you guys to turn there because it's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of details here that, that are, I'm going to try to bring out. Romans 6, verses 5 through 11. It says this. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know, now listen to this, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What that means is, when Jesus died on the cross, your faith in Him places your sins on the cross with Him. You, Christian, who struggle through sin, who could never overcome all of the darts of the enemy, who are completely under the power of this age, but even beyond that, has a nature that loves the things that do not honor God. We have that nature. What Christianity says is those who have believed the gospel, that reality, that self, that sinful heart, that heart that loves the things of the world more than anything else, that thing who is seeking the ultimate temporary pleasures of the world right now, has been crucified with God on the cross. Your body of sin was taken onto the cross and through the work of the cross, it was brought to be nothing. No more power on that, of that sin. Nothing, nothing means it has no power over you. Nothing means it has no account with you when you stand before God. Because you've been given the righteousness of Christ. And this is what that verse continues and says. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The very dynamic of the cross of Christ which was made effective through the resurrection of Christ, is that you are no longer enslaved to your sin. There's nothing in your life, regardless of how often you have practiced it, how long you've practiced it, how many generations back it's been consistent in your family, how much your heart loves it. If you are a Christian, hear this, O Christian, that sin has no power over you. And this is why. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. 
It has no power because the old self has been killed at the cross. He's died. This is what it says. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And this is what Paul says in the next verse. What what Paul's doing in this next verse when he says, so you also, he's saying this is what this means for you. This is what the implication is of this. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Which means for those who are in Christ, but through the resurrection, we are no longer in our sins anymore. Truly, if Jesus rose from the grave, we are no longer in our sin. No matter what it is, what practice you have in your life, no matter what you believe about that practice, and no matter what reality time and time again makes true or proves to you to be true. What do I mean by that? Man, maybe you're here this morning and you hear this, this idea of we're free from the power of sin. And you know, when I say that, the reason why I speak generally is because everyone identifies on some level right now. Think about whatever it is. Think about it. Whatever it is, think about it in your heart. When I say the sin struggle that you encounter, this is not foreign to us. Even unbelievers know there's that struggle that we have in our hearts. What what, what this ultimately means is, is whatever in your life is saying, this is, I'll never be free from this. What you can do is you can look at the resurrection of Christ in Luke chapter 24, and you can say, that's not true about me. That's not true about me anymore. If Jesus rose from the grave, then the life he lives, he lives to God. And what that means to me is that I can consider myself completely dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's not an empty promise. It's it's not that God is just, or Paul specifically here, is just pulling out of nowhere, out of a hat, that, hey, you don't have to sin anymore. That's what the entirety of the work of Christ was for. So that you could be free forever to live unto God's purposes. So for the first time in all of creation, His children could know Him intimately, could fellowship with Him intimately, and could glorify intimately Him forever. You can consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So what does this mean? It means nothing in your life, nothing in your life, except the death and resurrection of Christ is ultimate. Nothing. No struggle of lust. No propensity towards anger. Whatever else you put into its place has a power over you greater than the work of Christ. John tells us that the one that the Son sets free is really free. He's free. So what do we do with sin when we continue to struggle with it? Because the reality is we read that and Paul is saying, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. But our rebuttal, rightfully so, is, yeah, Paul, but here I am living in this life. Here I am constantly fighting and I know and I believe and I cling to the promises. Yeah, Romans 7, right, tells us it's still there. Still feel it. This is what we do. We repent in the power of the resurrection of Christ. 
There is power in the resurrection through our repentance to be free from it. There is. We pray. We ask God for help. And He will. He's an ever-present Savior that's nearest in our need. And we step forward in faith knowing that it ultimately has no power over us. It ultimately has no power over us. What that doesn't mean is that tomorrow you won't struggle. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that if Jesus rose from the grave, this does not eternally and ultimately define who I am anymore. It has no power over us. Last thing that Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, If Christ has not been raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Have you ever been afraid that you will die? I'm going to be honest. We live, uh, you guys know where we, many of you guys know where we live, downtown Gainesville. And like last night's a good example. Every time there's a storm and there's like a, there's like a major wind, there's this one big tree that I just don't feel confident about in my backyard. And, you know, I'm constantly like listening and trying to hear for crackling in the middle of the night. You know, Ezra is constantly thinking, Daddy, is a, is a tree going to fall around? You know, it's, it causes a stricken anxiety, honestly. You ever experienced, experienced that where maybe just an anxiety of something bad is going to happen to you or your family, something bad is going to happen to your family. If you're a parent, you know that that is, you kind of live in it. I, I've told a ton of people this that, and I've probably said this multiple times on, on Sunday, is I didn't really know what anxiety was until I became a parent. I never encountered it. And then when I, when I had kids, I'm like, oh, that's what that is. And I sympathize on another level, you know, like. What we feel, what we feel is a fear and finality of death. That death is speaking some type of finality over us. And, and the reason why that's so paralyzing is because you can't escape death. You can't escape it. There's something in death that's totally fi- final. Look, at the end of the day, regardless of what type of life you live here, what, regardless of what good life you have, regardless if you've got the most power in the world, the dictator of North Korea, Joe Biden, you know, most, most powerful man in, in the world, maybe. Um, name the list, you know. At the end of the day, they, they live in all their pomp and all their power and money and fulfillment. But one day, they will not escape death. They will not escape it. But if Christ has been raised from the grave, death has no power to control us anymore. And instead, death functions as an entryway into eternal life with God. I want you to consider this in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Listen to these words from Paul when he says what he says about the implication of the resurrection. So again, remember 1 Corinthians 15 is him saying, this is what this narrative means. Because Luke would have been a close associate with Paul. Verse 24 says, Then comes the end 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Notice what it says there around the middle of that passage. That the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The resurrection shows us that death has no power anymore over those who have claimed him, over those who believe in him. And therefore, as Hebrews uses the language of, we're actually as, as um, just humans are, are in this struggle, Hebrews uses the language that our fear of death is enslaving. It's slavery. That we are enslaved to sin because of the fear of death. Christ destroys that fear. When you see Jesus for who he is, Death has lost all of its power. Paul continues in in 1 Corinthians 15, as you guys know. Death has been swallowed up in victory, victorious triumph forever. Oh, death, where's your sting? There's no sting anymore. The threat of death does not compare to him. And again, it doesn't mean, like me, last night, you don't struggle through and wrestle with the fact that, oh no, something bad's going to happen to us. But we're only, we're the only ones, Christian, oh Christian, who has anything to, who has any type of power to combat those thoughts. We're the only ones who can look at something in history and say, death is not final for me. We're the only ones who can, who can look at the resurrected Jesus and say, I know I feel anxiety right now, but praise God in the victory that Jesus won. And be calm to that anxiety, maybe. Death is not final. So, as we conclude, I I, I wanted to think specifically through how the resurrection impacts maybe a competing vision of what a good life is. And I want to offer three ways, three different particular topics, three ways that the resurrection impacts our vision of the good life. St. Augustine, you guys will know his name. Augustine's a very prominent figure from church history. And he basically said that Christians are different from the world in three basic areas. This was very profound to me. He said the three areas are money, sexuality, and power. Christians are are different from the world in three basic areas, and it's money, sexuality, and power. Now, I want to think about those three areas as we kind of conclude here, just as, as a way to see how the resurrection impacts the good, fulfilled life that we're seeking to live in the world. One is money, right? The world tells us that make as much money as you can. People move from all over the world to come to this wonderful country, America, to make money, to have the dreams of financial freedom, to have the dreams of financial abundance fulfilled in their hearts. America used to be the symbol of that. Maybe it is in some ways. It's not everything that obviously it used to be 
centuries or two two centuries ago or so. And the reason why this is sought after and the reason why America has, has become that in so many ways, where all of your dreams and all of your hopes can be reached, is money is a cultural symbol that can be exchanged in pursuit of what you really value. So money is just a way to say, I can have what I want. I can have the things that, that, that I deeply care about. But this is what happens when you see the resurrected Christ. When you understand the resurrection on a deep, penetrating, daily, heart, interior level. That if the resurrection is true, then money is no longer the way that we get all of the things in the world that we desire and want. But money is simply a way that we pursue the glory of God. Money becomes an opportunity to demonstrate where our faith and hope really is. And it's in Christ and his resurrection. It's in the establishment of his kingdom and the advancement of his kingdom into all the world. The resurrection enables Christians to give away their money instead of storing up their treasure. Because their treasure is in heaven. Because their hope is in Christ who is risen from the grave. The second area that, and I'm going to spend probably a little bit more time on this area, is specifically in regards to sexuality. Augustine says one of the, one of the greatest ways that Christians are different in the world is by means of how we live out a sexual ethic in the world. It was said of the early Christians in the first couple centuries by the Romans that they were in stark contrast to the Roman citizens because they were promiscuous, which means they dispersed freely their money, and they guarded their beds. While the Romans guarded their money and were promiscuous with their beds. And our world says that sexual fulfillment is ultimate, right? You need sexual freedom, you need sexual exploration to be happy. I, I heard a pastor say one time, he was, he was counseling a guy, and that, that guy was also going to another counselor that was, you know, had a, maybe more, more of a secular approach to that. And he said the, the advice was, to, to the young man was like, hey, all of the frustration that you're experiencing right now, and this is, this is a general understanding in the world, all the frustration you're communicating, you experience in your life is stemming from sexual frustration. So you need to explore, be free, try new things. The resurrection shows us that life, this life, is but a shadow of greater things to come for us. And those greater things to come and what, by God's grace, we may be able to experience here in increasing measure, here and now, will meet every sexual desire that we have ever had. Jesus will meet that on the deepest level. Maybe you, maybe you struggle here, the same-sex attraction or pornography or lust, or just have a general sense of, of sexual frustration. You know, Charles Taylor, he's a modern uh, philosopher. He basically says the Western modern worldview is this, you find a sense of self, worth, and fullness from within. That if, if you want to know what the good life really is, come to grips with the things that are most deepest in your heart, right? Come to grips with a, a yourself, maybe, 
Come to grips with what gives you the mo- makes you feel the most worth. Come to grips with whatever makes you feel the most full. But the resurrection means that the Christian has seen that their fulfillment is in Christ over and above anything else in their lives. Anything else in our lives. We pursue the glory of God in our sexuality and not based upon how, our, how we feel. We pursue the glory of God in our bodies, not because of the sense of worth, the authentic self, or the fullness that it gives us. Not to find ourselves. But, but we instead find all of that in Christ. When He rose from the grave, it, it, it stamped on us that we are not our own. We are God's. And we live for Him. We pursue the glory of God in our sexuality because He is our fulfillment. The third area is power. Christians who have experienced the wonder and beauty of not only being identified with Christ in His death, but now in His resurrection, view the, the influence and the power that they have in the world totally differently. It reframes what the good life is. The good life is not... Accumulating power and wealth and prestige so that you can have all of your desires fulfilled. But instead, when we see the power of Christ in the resurrection, then our power begins to be leveraged to serve others. Power becomes not a tool to allow them to receive everything that they wanted. They find that in the resurrected Christ. They find that in the one who rose from the grave. Instead, their power is a way to live out and to live in, maybe, the kingdom of Christ's rule and reign. So the question becomes, how has Christ called me to leverage my power and influence in the world? How has he called me to do this? Not, how can my power serve my self-interest and my desires? And this translates into serving those who have nothing to offer us. The reason why that vision of selflessly laying down our desires for the sake of others is because our desire is not Christ. What makes it so hard to hear the words of the New Testament of this ethic where one another, we one another one another, and we, and we live for the sake of the other. What makes that hard is when our mind gets cloudy and we can't see the clarity of the resurrected Jesus. When we see him for who he is, then his ethic begins to make sense. Would you see the resurrected Jesus? You know, the disciples were perplexed here because at the end of the day, they didn't have a category for the power of the resurrected Christ. But Luke writes his account for the very purposes so that we might believe in the Son of God who was resurrected from the grave. He writes his account for this purpose. And he writes his account for us today to say, what are we living for? What do we live for? What informs the deepest fulfillment that you seek after in your life? What informs that? Is it the world? Is it what the world says happiness is? Or is it what Christ in all of his glory and all of his resurrected power shows us to be our fulfillment?